keeping with that uh, theme this morning, All I Have is Christ. Uh, If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open to the book of Colossians. If you can see this here, but we're getting, this is how far we've made it. And this is how far we have left to go. So we are uh, nearing the end of our journey through the Bible from 10,000 feet. And here we find ourselves in yet another letter that was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to one of the churches, uh, the new church plants, if you will. Right, and before we uh, read anything from Colossians this morning, I want to begin with a, a word of prayer. Father, we uh, open your word again uh, this morning, and as we open these um, physical copies of your word, um, I pray that uh, in a similar manner we would open our hearts to receive everything that you have for us here. Uh, Father, we know that you have promised us that your word does not return void, that it, uh, it comes down from heaven just like rain that waters the earth and causes things to grow. Your word uh, does everything that you set out to accomplish through it. And so Lord, we pray that that would be true today for each person who is sitting here. Lord, would you... By your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our hearts to behold the wondrous things you have prepared for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your master? Right now, where you're at, reflecting on the week that was, would you say that it is clear that Jesus owns you? That he owns your life? Does he own your time? Does he own your major decisions? Does he have a say in what you do with your finances and with your stuff? Does it matter to you what he thinks about the way that you live. What position would you say that Jesus holds right now in your life? And for those of us here, probably 99% of us here at least, who probably do not question Jesus's authority and rule over all creation, would you say that your life reflects his lordship in the same way. What would other people say? Colossians is a book that is all about the supremacy of Christ over everything. Jesus ruling over everything, ruling over his creation, ruling over his church, ruling over sin and death, and ruling over you. Paul's aim in this letter to the Colossians is to bring encouragement, uh, to bring a word of spurring people on who may be in danger of shaking a little bit in their faith, but encouraging them in their endurance by presenting the person of Jesus Christ so powerfully 
Uh, Some of the most exalted language you'll find in all the scriptures defining who Christ is to present him so powerfully and to present him so unmistakably as the supreme Lord of all who is worthy of all our worship. That the bigger our thoughts and the bigger our view of Christ would be, the less enticed we would be to fall for the cheap substitutes that confront us every day. Colossians was uh, possibly one of the only churches that Paul wrote to that he never ended up uh, having a chance to visit. Now, we, we say possibly. We don't know, but there are good clues uh, that lead us to believe that this was um, a people. Certainly, there were a lot of people in this church that he says he had never met. Uh, and he's writing in, a, in response to a, a good report um, that he's received from his friend, Epaphras, about how their fruit, uh, the fruit of the gospel, is increasing among, among them and the love that they have in the Holy Spirit. And though perhaps he's never even met these people. You know, we talked about gospel partnership last week and how we can have these supernatural bonds with people we've, we've hardly even known, though, though perhaps he's never met them in person. He calls it a struggle that he has for this church. He agonizes that this church would persevere and continue to bear good fruit. And uh, I would just echo that um, concern this morning. I, I don't, I'm sure I fall short of the agony that Paul feels for this uh, church, but that's kind of how I feel about us. I agonize to see that you would persevere and that you would be faithful and that you would be till your dying day devoted to Christ Jesus. Look at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is part of his prayer uh, for the church. He says, And so from the, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So this is is Paul's prayer for the church, that they would endure and that they would have patience and that they would continue to bear fruit and that they would continue to do so with joy, but then throughout this letter, you're going to hear things like this, what he says in Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 4, telling him all the, the great things about who Christ is. He follows that by saying, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In chapter 2, verse 8, he says, similarly, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Or in chapter 2, verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed out without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. 
Now, as you learned last week, I may only be 40 years old, but I have been around long enough to see a lot of people fall away, not having held fast to the head who is Christ. So just as Paul is going to present Christ to us in a majestic and magnificent way like nothing you have ever heard before, I want you to hear this this morning, that we too must have a view, a big, the biggest view possible we can of Christ as the supreme Lord over us if we are going to endure and be faithful to the end. Look at Colossians Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 now. So last week it was Philippians, and we said there in the middle there was this sort of hymn that perhaps the church would have recited that uh, gave a summary of the gospel, what, what God had done in coming in the flesh to save us. Very similar to that. In the book of Colossians, you have a sort of hymn or a, a poem um, where Paul is going to just describe in very exalted language and just very compactly who Jesus Christ is. And this is what he says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. Remember, Jesus we're talking about here, right? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to, rec to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this morning, what I want to do is take Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 as a sort of outline, uh, a way to explain what Paul is telling the church, a way to explain how Paul is warning and exhorting the church in Colossae. And I want to do so under these headings. Jesus, well, the title, Jesus over everything, the points being Jesus over creation, Jesus over his church, Jesus over sin and death, and Jesus over you. If you're writing that down, Jesus over creation, Jesus over his church, Jesus over sin and death, and Jesus over you. Let's take that first one, Jesus over creation. So this would have been, that the, the Colossian church, this would have been, if you can kind of Put yourself in, um, you know, the early first century A.D. Um, and all that they were surrounded by in the culture of that time, the Greek culture of that time. This would have been a day when there was probably some uh, temptation to conform to the world in terms of worshiping the pantheon of gods. 
maybe <coughs> worshiping the emperor uh, in Rome. Uh, it could have been a time for people of the Jewish faith who had come to know Christ recently to then shrink back, as we've been learning about in the book of Hebrews, to maybe shrink back into following the law of Moses and following regulations in order to somehow earn righteousness before God. There may have been a temptation, and this is really what shows up big in Colossians, to be swept away as well by some other new mystic Addition or, or secret knowledge that would be an addition to what Christ had done for them. And so for whatever it was, Paul felt it was essential to send a reminder, a reminder in this letter to the church in Colossae about the supremacy of Christ in all things. Now, in other world religions, just think about the big ones, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Hindu, uh, there are various truth claims about uh, their God or maybe the founder of the religion. Some uh, of the Muslim faith follow the teachings of Muhammad, who is held as a prophet, who received divine revelation, said to have received divine revelation uh, from God. But um, eventually, Muhammad died. Or there is the Buddha, who also lived and died. Hinduism allows for the belief in one God, in, in everything, or many gods, or one God among many impersonal gods, or personal gods. It's really whatever you want to believe is kind of acceptable in the Hindu faith. But here is where Christianity, and here is where Jesus Christ diverges from all other paths, if you will. A lot of times people claim, oh, it's all the same God that we worship and we're all gonna get where we need to go eventually, whatever God we believe in. This is not the claim that Jesus Christ made. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, knowing that all joy, all satisfaction, everything as it was created, designed to be, is found in life in him, could not tell you to worship some other gods and you may find your way to the same path. Jesus Christ, unlike all of these others, claimed and proved himself to be the everlasting Lord of all. That is what makes our faith distinct from every other faith under the planet. Paul begins by telling us that he, this is Jesus, the man who walked on the face of this earth, is the image of the invisible God. And where have you heard that language before? The image of God. Uh, in Genesis, we are told that we have been created in the image of God. But in Jesus Christ, if you want to know what the exact imprint of God's nature is, you will only find that in him. He revealed to us who God is by coming in the flesh. And, and Paul says this in uh, verse 19 and also chapter 2, verse 9. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The man from Nazareth who walked on this earth for approximately 33 years, who died on a Roman cross, is also 
the same one who was speaking the world into existence before there was anything else. In Jesus' own words, before Abraham was, I am. I existed before everything. In fact, when we read in Genesis, let us, let us make man in our own image, included in the us of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ, the one God in three persons. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars. He created the car you drove to get here, at least the material that makes that up. He created the pews that you are sitting in right now. He created the body that you occupy. Take just a couple seconds right now. Look down at your hands. Feel the beating of your heart in your chest. Feel yourself breathing. Jesus made all of that. He's called the firstborn, it says here, the firstborn of all creation. Now, don't let people uh, twist you on this. Often it it is uh, claimed by people who believe Jesus is a created being, even though we've established that he is not. He was before all creation. They will say, well, it says he is the first one born in all creation. That's used among uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, other churches, I'm sure, as well, to say that Jesus is a God or Jesus is a creation. But this word here, uh, the firstborn, the, the protokos, I just like saying that word in the Greek, the protokos, uh, don't think in terms of literal, chronological, the first one born, but firstborn being the status that was given to the one who had all of the father's inheritance. So the highest. In fact, in the Psalms, I th- uh, the psalmist says of David in, in uh, Psalm 89, 27, I will make you my firstborn and higher than all of the highest kings in the earth. David was not the firstborn. Uh, In fact, in Revelation, Jesus is referred to, again, as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and ruler of all kings on earth. Firstborn merely being a status. He is the highest. He has everything. He has authority over everything. And he is distinct from all creation in that he comes before it and rules over it. We could say there is nothing that has ever been created that is outside of him. As John says, all things were made, this is in John chapter 1, the prologue of John, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And not only were all things created by him, but did you catch this in verse 16? All of creation whether visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authority was created through him and, what does it say? For him. This is a really, really big deal. All things were created for his purposes, for his glory, for his delight, for him to employ as he wills. 
And it says, he is before all things. One of my favorite phrases in all of the scripture. Memorize just this phrase. In him, all things hold together. Just tuck that away this morning. In him, all things hold together. Which means, at this very moment, he is the sustaining principle that is holding the whole universe together. In fact, if he were to withdraw himself, withdraw his divine sustaining hand from this universe, you know what would happen? Everything would just fall apart and cease to be. And this doesn't just mean that the earth and the planets, how they're orbiting around the sun and and the gravity is keeping us all here from floating away and, and the fact that trees are producing oxygen that we need to breathe all because of his divine hand. It doesn't just mean that, although it does certainly mean that. But it also means that you are only held together because of him. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. As one commentator referred to it, he is the divine glue of the universe. And I would add, he is the divine glue of your being. And if this is true in the physical realm, that Jesus is holding everything together in the physical realm, it also says things, whether visible and invisible, so it's also true in the spiritual realm. Your life falls apart if Christ is not in it. In him, all things hold together. You were created for him. You are held together by him. You are most image displaying when his life is in you. Your soul is most aligned with its purpose when it is held by him. All right. Now we are only through the first point. And like I said, some of the most exalted, mind-blowing, I don't know if your brain is hurting, your brain is full now. We could probably stop right now and say, come back next week. And if we were going through the book one uh, passage at a time, we would do that, but we must press on. (laughs) Suffice it to say, Jesus is Lord over all creation. Jesus is Lord of everything. Is that, isn't that a cause for praise? Maybe a hallelujah this morning? All right, I need that. Hallelujah. Now, up to this point, though, we could take, we we could kind of take everything that we've said, at least in terms of, of Christ being the ruler over all creation, having made everything, everything holding uh, together in him. And it's still possible that we could still have a concept of a great and majestic and, and maybe even terrifying God, certainly a creative God. But what about a good God? What about a loving, caring, and merciful God? The next thing that Paul says, I don't think he's just kind of throwing this in as just to say, and here's another thing, and here's another thing, and here's another thing. I think it's very intentional. The next thing Paul tells the church in Colossae is that he is, verse 18, the head of the body, the church the head of the body of the church. So the next point is this, Jesus 
over the church. Jesus is head of the church. He didn't just create everything and then leave like some people believe. That's, that's a form of, of deism, the fact that God kind of just created everything and then left it to go however, however it turned out. And even God himself sometimes is surprised about the things that we do. We do not believe that. We don't believe that Jesus just came to the earth, did his thing, and then kind of retreated into his secret chamber in heaven, not to be bothered with those messy humans again, because after all, when I came and hung out with them, that was messed up. I don't want to do that ever again. But rather to say that Jesus is the head of the body, which he's referring to as the church, the head of this messy group of humans in the flesh is to confess that out of his love, he's entered into this profoundly personal, joy-giving relationship with his creation. Just, just the thought of him being the head of a church, how how so um, not like him we are, how we want to be like him, but how so far from that we are, and yet out of his love, he enters into fellowship with us. That just gets me, that gets me excited. That gives me goosebumps just to think about that. That he has, has chosen because of his great love and mercy not to simply rule over us as what are the gods of the Greek pantheon or, or some other types of gods and other religions. Not just rule over us like this distant, cold, capricious, domineering dictator who kind of laughs uh, maniacally at the, the things he puts us through. But one instead who invites us to share in the full blessings of his life the full inheritance that he has as the firstborn. You know, in, in Ephesians, it says, uh, you know, we were dead in our sins and we were following the prince of the power of air, but he, he uh, because of his great love, because of his mercy, he made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ. And it says he seated us in the heavenly places. In other words, all that Christ has, he is bringing us into the full experience of that as head of the body. He's both the head in the sense that he is the, the ruler over the church. He's the, the, the CEO, the chief director of the church. But he's also the head in the sense that the brain is the head over the body, the source of life, the source of our vitality. This is a statement that the church is wholly dependent on Christ for our life, for our growth, and for our bearing good fruit. We know that uh, if the brain is detached from the body, uh, the body ain't going to live, right? It may flutter around for a little while, I think that happens, but it's not going to live if it's detached from its head. So why would it be important for Paul to remind this church that Jesus is their head? Doesn't it go without saying, right, that if we're a church of the Christian uh, variety, then, then we're Jesus people, right? That's why we're here, because we uh, love the same God who is Jesus Christ. We are Christians, Christ, Christians, Christians the people who follow Christ, the people who have Christ living in us. And we, we seek to do the will of Christ, right? All the time, right? 
Well, yes, but sadly, too often, also, no. And we know that it has been a pattern throughout the history of the church, and it has been a pattern throughout the history of our own lives to sometimes abandon the head, to sometimes become too focused on um, ourselves or our own interests or on the institution, growing the organization, growing the institution itself or exalting uh, leaders or individuals within it that the head to whom those individuals have all been joined is just kind of detached. Where did Jesus go? Some of you could probably uh, sit through a church service today. Maybe you have and wonder like, Jesus? Like, anybody? Any, anybody want to talk about Jesus? Anybody want to open his word? This is, this is true. Think of the selling of, of church positions uh, during the Middle Ages or the, the selling of, of tickets into heaven uh, by the Roman church for the, for the dead so that they could get into heaven or all the superstition uh, that surrounded religious relics. Or today, think of things like Super highly produced hype rallies and motivational speech sermons. Or all of the, I know you have set through some of these Bible-less Bible studies. Anybody ever been to a Bible-less Bible study? I have. <laughs> Anybody ever been to a, a uh, maybe not a prayerless prayer meeting, but a prayer meeting where you talked for about an hour and spent a few minutes at the end praying? There are... Oftentimes, where we get so caught up in what we're doing together, the, the social aspect or our own interests, that we forget that Christ is the head of the church. And Paul wants the Colossians to understand that a body detached from its head is dead. It's one of the reasons why he says in chapter 1, verse 28, just wants to make it clear in case anybody doesn't know, him we proclaim Christ we proclaim, warning everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Jesus being head over the church means that he is our supreme head. It means that nothing should compete with him for the highest place. It means that in everything we do, our aim must be to be obedient and faithful to his commands, right? Whether that be making disciples by baptizing and teaching them to observe everything, or whether it be just to devote ourselves to God's word, or whether it be to love one another as Christ loved us, or speaking truth in love, or faithfully participating together in the ordinances that he's given us, like the Lord's Supper, or confronting and confessing sin. It means that this must be, the way that we do church must be the way that Christ, our chief has given us in order to experience him most fully. And it also means that in all these things, our aim should always be to worship him, to put his glory and wisdom on display, to press hard into all these things in order to grow in the knowledge of him and to grow in his grace towards us. This is what it means for him to be head over his body the church. I wonder how many of you came into the church gathering this morning with something, a lot of things on your mind, but nothing really about worshiping Christ. You don't have to raise your hand. But I know that's true because I know that's been true of me in the past. 
Christ is our head. Christ is the object of all our worship. Christ should be at the center of everything we do. But it also means this, for Christ to be the head of the church. It means that it's in him alone that our salvation and our redemption that has brought us into fellowship with God is even possible at all. That salvation is found in Christ alone and in no one else, in nothing else, in no other name. And that brings us to the most, perhaps the most essential truth of Colossians, that Jesus alone is the conqueror of sin and death. I remember what Paul is doing here. He's trying to protect them from some false substitutions and false additions to their faith that have been creeping into the church. And so Paul needs to make absolutely clear your salvation, your redemption, your participation in fellowship with the Father is only possible because of what Christ did for you on the cross. Why do you think he went to such great lengths if it was to just kind of help you along so that you could in turn earn your way to heaven. And so Jesus over sin and death. Paul says he is the beginning here in in verse 18. Head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In chapter 1, verse 13 through 14, right before this, this part, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You were dead in your sins, he says in chapter 2, verse 13, but God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Over them in him. You know, when the Roman officials nailed Jesus to the cross, which, by the way, who created those Roman officials? Who created the cross? Who created the nails that went into his hands? Yes, when the Roman officials nailed Jesus, the creator of everything, to the cross that day on Golgotha between two common criminals, Do you know God was doing about 10,000 things? That's an understatement, but God was doing about 10,000 things, of which those officials, of which the Jewish people knew really nothing. And one of those, number one, is that our record of debt for breaking his law, the thing that separated us from God, the legal demands of the law that, that we are punishable by death for rebelling against a perfect and holy God, that debt that we could never repay was canceled, was expunged, which was, it was no longer to be held against us for all whose life is in Christ. 
Not only that, but we could say that everyone who was spiritually dead, who was enslaved to other authorities, who was unable to bring themselves to life, he made us alive by removing, by defeating the power of sin that once controlled us. All this is happening at the same time on the cross, mind you. Not only that, but at the same time, it says he was disarming and triumphing over all the forces of evil that have held men captive in sin and even the ones that put him on the cross. So therefore now, anyone who entrusts their life to Christ, the conqueror of sin and death, no longer remains in debt to sin, no longer remains spiritually dead in sin, no longer has to be enslaved or controlled by sin, but is free in every way to live for God. He says, my struggle... Here's his, his, his struggle, is that you will come to know all of, the, all of the knowledge of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, that your hearts would be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, why do I say this? I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Don't be deluded. Don't let people delude you into thinking that Jesus is just a supplement or one part of some other greater religious system. Christ is fully God, and you, if you trust in Christ, have been filled with the fullness of God. So don't let people make you think you need to do other stuff that Christ has already done for you. And so then he goes into some examples, starting in chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, these are the specific examples of the time, but just think of all the things that people say today about what you need to do to be righteous. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. People who would say, yes, Jesus, but you still have to do these things. You still have to participate in these festivals. You still have to hold this particular day sacred. He says in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, everything that was taking place in the Old Testament, or so much was taking place with the sacrificial system, uh, the Lamb of God, the tabernacle. We talked about some of this on Tuesday with the guys. Those were shadows of things to come, of which the substance that they were pointing to was Christ And now Christ has come, so you no longer need to insist on following these things as a means to earn your salvation. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. What does Paul say is the core issue with all of these things in chapter 2? Verse 19, not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? Christ, not holding fast to Christ from whom the whole body 
nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows. This is how the body grows, with a growth that is from God. How does the body grow? By holding fast to Christ. This is perhaps the most definitive statement in Colossians on the necessity of understanding the supremacy of Christ. If we don't hold fast to the head, we ain't going to grow. The body's going to atrophy. The body is going to die. And he says, besides all that, in verse 23 of chapter 2, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Doing all these things is not going to conquer sin. Doing all these things is not going to put away the deeds of the flesh which are eating away at you right now. They're of no value, only holding fast to the head. There's actually a a movement early on in church history where uh, many began to think that there was a key to a higher life um, that if we kind of withdrew, withdrew from the world and were committed to a life of intentional poverty and we put the body through all kinds of, of suffering, we beat our bodies in order to pr- prove our devotion to Christ, that we will somehow attain a higher standing before God. Um, perhaps the most uh, ridiculous example of this, at least as it, as it kind of uh, the, the greatest representation of the folly here is Uh, found in a man by the name of Simeon the Stylite. Anybody ever heard of Simeon the Stylite? So Simeon the Stylite decided that he was going to live on top of a pillar for 37 years. He actually lived on top of a pillar for 37 years. Other people brought him food and water. But he believed that by denying the body of any indulgence that it would somehow attain him a higher standing before God. And Paul is warning here that anything which is going to diminish what Christ has done on the cross, anything that diminishes the cross, anything that diminishes the once and for all sacrifice for sin, the once and for all sacrifice for our salvation, any of that diminishes the glory of Christ. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. What does that mean? Jesus paid it all. He has dealt with our sins once and for all. And anything which diminishes the preeminence and the glory of Christ, Paul says, is both misguided and delusional. His words, don't be deluded. You're delusional if you try to add things to the gospel. Jesus alone is the conqueror of sin of death. Jesus alone is the Lord of life. So then, what Do we do? Where do we go from here? What does it look like to hold fast to our head, to Christ? And this is the final point. If Jesus reigns over creation, if Jesus reigns over his church, if Jesus reigns over sin and death, and all this is very good, right? Then for the sake of your endurance, and for the sake of your assurance, and for the sake of your joy, let Jesus reign over you. So Jesus, uh, Paul is going to use, as he, as he commonly did, he did this in Romans as well, he uses this put off and put on language. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Did any of you feel like your life is absolutely enveloped by, absolutely hidden in God, hidden with Christ in God? Did any of you today feel like Christ is your life, that you have so put him on that, that it's no longer you that live, but Christ who lives in you, as Paul says? When you think of what it means to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We, we throw that phrase around a lot, right? Have you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? What does it mean? Picture it like this. Picture your life being hidden with Christ in God. And to be hidden with Christ in God looks like this. He says, put to death, verse 5, Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And here he says, put these away, put to death these deeds of the flesh, but put on this. Verse 12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now think about this. Can you really comprehend what it means to put on these things apart from understanding what happened on the cross. I hear so many people say today, so many lost people say things in the wake of a a tragedy or somebody uh, personally injuring them. I could never forgive that person. I know people who will say, "I, I can have compassion on starving children in Africa, but I cannot have compassion on the coworker or the spouse who wronged me. Or people who might say, I can be humble to a point, humility is good, but at some point, we got to get some respect and recognition, right? Or people who say, you know, I'm patient, but my patience has a limit. You know, only the gospel is able to both explain and enable compassion and kindness and forgiveness and patience and humility and meekness and love in the highest way. Christ lavished on us compassion that we never deserved, a kindness that we could never return. He forgave a debt that we could never repay in order to give us a life that we could never give ourselves. He bore with us as our very sins put him on the cross. He loved us with the deepest and widest and highest love ever known. That's the gospel. But never forget the order. It's not try to be more humble, try to be more patient, try to be more peaceful, try to love better. It's put on Christ. Set your mind on Christ. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things above. 
For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Jesus over you. By the way, just as I was doing this, I found out that is a very helpful uh, acronym or acrostic. Jesus over you. What does that make? Joy. Where are you going to find joy? Only in so far as Jesus is reigning over you. And he says, kind of tells us how to do this here. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's one of the reasons why I'm going to keep harping on being in the word all throughout this year. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And whatever you do, verse 17, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus over you. This is the Christian life. This is the key to your endurance and faithfulness and joy. I know Paul is going to close with a series of instructions for the household. Wives, submit to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Parents, uh, don't exasperate your children. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, um, know that you have a master in heaven. All, the, all these things, which were in Ephesians, so I'm not going to I'm not going to go into these uh, this morning, but just know that the key with everything, all of our relationships, everywhere God has put us, the key to all those is to do everything, as he says, whatever in word, deed, everything, as if you are submitted to the Lord Jesus, as if the Lord Jesus is reigning over your life. So friends, Christian brothers and sisters, you are no longer your own. You have died in Christ is now your life. The Lord Jesus reigns over creation. The Lord Jesus reigns over his church too. The Lord Jesus reigns over sin and death. May the Lord reign over you.